Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of I Love Rock and Roll. With uh, my name's Ken Krantz, and my co-host with me is Chip Chantry. Chip Ch- Good evening, Ken Krantz, and listeners, and America, and the world. <laughs> That's pretty. It's pretty ambitious for a first podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's, um, I think right off the bat, we should talk about what this podcast isn't going to be. Um, it's not a different strokes podcast, which unfortunately, (laughs) which it was supposed to be one out there who is a diehard different strokes fan. Like Ken and I are, we started out, we, we, Ken and I have been friends for probably what, 10 years now, uh, both both, stand up comics. And we're like, let's do a different Strokes podcast because we would love to do that. We're both big fans of the show. And what started as that has morphed into what you're about to hear, which right. has nothing to do with different it has strokes. has nothing to do with different Strokes. But the the way the, the idea even started was uh, when, the, when the pandemic started, I would spend every night on Stars. They would play an hour of different Strokes. And I started watching it with my then four-year-old daughter at the time. And I've been watching Different Strokes every night for almost a year of the pandemic. And I would start texting you late at night some of my like funny thoughts about Different Strokes. And then it turned out you were as giant a fan as me. Yes. Yeah. And then we started- We used to watch it. Yeah, we used to, my brother and I used to watch it every, I mean, we'd watch it first run a little bit towards the end because I'm about that age. And then every night at 5.30 and 6 in Philly was back-to-back episodes that we would watch for years, just yes. years, over yeah. and over and over. <laughs> I was, I, you How know. How great would it be if we just backdoored this into a different strokes pocket? Like people <laughs> came to listen about rock and roll history and crazy stories about rock and roll. And we just did the old bait and switch. It's like, now this is a different strokes podcast. Well, it's funny. I was uh, on on the way here. It did. It did occur to me. Like we got to get, um, we got to get Todd Bridges on this podcast and we'll, yeah, we'll we're, we're going to we'll, get Todd we'll, Bridges we'll, to talk about the Grateful Dead. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll find out what his favorite band is and then we'll, We'll talk about that for a few minutes and then grill them on different strokes for an hour. Um, but then we, you know, I, I we actually got pretty far into planning it and then sort of decided maybe as as much as I believe the people are looking for a different strokes podcast, maybe now wasn't the right time. Right. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Right. Oh, that Todd bridge is? That Todd bridge, baby. <laughs> That's it. And that was the episode, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next week. <laughs> we were going to call it, we were going to call it What You Talking About with Chip and Ken. Mm-hmm. Well, if this doesn't work, maybe we'll, maybe we'll go back to that. But yeah. um, so then we started talking about, we're both big music fans and um, I kind of just wanted to do like, uh, like a sex, drugs and rock and roll podcast. I know there's a few out there, but they're they're so much fun. And I think there's so much to dig into as we get into our first topic today is there are some le- I mean, there's some b- obviously big, obvious stories, sex, drugs and rock and roll stories, which we will hit on. But there's so many little weird, obscure stories about some of the craziest people and some of the most talented people and some of the most tortured people that most 
most people don't know about and that I really love those little nooks and crannies of rock and roll that we really want to get into Me and, too. Uh, and just for fun. Or yeah. even like the really, the really famous stories or bands. And, and then you, you dig into the lesser known players that were behind the scenes. And there's, there's a lot of, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of good material out there to, uh, to explore. I th- I feel like this is maybe a higher ceiling than, than a different strokes. <laughs> different right. strokes podcast but um not so- that a different strokes podcast can't have a high ceiling and i still have high hopes and if you're a listener right now and you're like i need to hear a different strokes podcast please let us know uh tweet at me <laughs> at chip chantry and we we will it because it literally does take different strokes to move the world um so let's give like real quick give me like your your mount rushmore of rock like who are your for just well let's give the people an idea of of the kind of music we like and and the kind of stuff they'll be hearing. Sure. Well, I you know I'm a '90s kid and a '2000s kid, so some of the, some of my favorite bands are you know I I love you know Pavement and Built to Spill, the you know sort of the indie rock you know, and then I love the Black Crows and the Hold Steady, the Pixies, that type of thing. But going back as far as classic rock goes. My first love just from my parents was the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. I, I love the Beach Boys. And just what started out as such a – I went through such a weird history myself with the Beach Boys because it's I, – I, my 10th birthday, I was given tickets to see the Beach Boys live at the Valley Forge Music Fair outside of Philadelphia with Stamos on drums. Uh-huh. This was Kokomo era. Stamos on drums. And, you know, and then I got out of the Beach Boys for a while because I was like, oh, it's just bubblegum crap that – it was fun when I was a child, but now I'm over it. And then you re-explore and you find out, first of all, A, how incredible it was, and B, what a dark history they have, yes. which we'll get, which we'll yeah. get into in we'll, later episodes. We'll, we'll get into episodes. them at some point for sure. So I love the Beach Boys, and uh, you know, I want to say the Beatles and Stones, of course. I think that's – if anybody doesn't like them, I question that. You know, So the Beatles and Stones. But I'm also a huge Floyd fan. Love Pink Floyd. Uh, de- definitely into them. And then Otis Redding, I love, and anything Motown, especially yeah. the Four Tops. Yes. If, if you don't like Motown, there is something wrong with your brain. You you are broken in some way. And then going back to to like Buddy Holly, I, I can't get enough of enough of Buddy Holly. And so I'd say those are sort of my going back as far as classic rock and 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 50s, 60s, 70s rock. That's that's who I'm going for. And I'm I'm a de- I'm a deadhead, and I do have to admit, and, and I, I admit this unapologetically. Throughout the years, I was a deadhead and a fishhead for many years as well. Yeah. Oh, I can't yeah. stand It's so funny. Those are like my Mount Rushmore of the most hated bands I could think of. Um, and I understand that. I, 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 I really enjoyed them for a long time. Fish, especially. Yeah. Uh, but The Grateful Dead, too. But I, I'm not somebody who's going to argue. If you don't like fish, I can completely understand. And I'm not going to try to uh, be a- evangelical about the band. Yes, I had so many people try and try and sell me on that band, and I went to go see them a few times. And uh, yeah. but every time I was just like, they're, they're great musicians, but it's not for me. Right, and it's the whole experience too. I, I've seen them twenty times throughout the years. I, my first show to see them was in '94. I, I haven't listened to more of their later stuff. I don't really listen to them as much anymore. And it was just a fun time in college yeah. and in my twenties. I really enjoyed it, and it was a fun thing. But I'm not going to try to uh, twist anybody's arm to listen to fish uh, but what's your what's your mount rushmore so i got it so you have a big ass mount rushmore usually people are like my round my, my here's my four i know <laughs> you're like yeah here, here's my here's my 30 artists here's mount my rushmore. 17 
Um, me, it's uh, the Stones, Bowie, Iggy Pop, and then uh, more our generation. I'd say Queens of the Stone Age. All great band, yeah. yeah. Love, all love it's all pretty similar shit. But um, if we can get back to the world of different strokes and TV for a while, I got to give a <laughs> shout out right now on YouTube is one of my favorite shows from the '90s, a kids show. Do you remember the Adventures of Pete and Pete mm-hmm. on Nickelodeon? It's a great show and it holds up. It's a it's a crazy kids show, uh, but just beautifully written and I love it. Uh, as as some people don't know, uh, Iggy Pop is a recurring character on that show. He plays one of the friends' dads, and he's just Iggy Pop, and he's just on that show a bunch of episodes he just pops up every once in a while it's it's kind of amazing i definitely didn't know that and now i'm definitely gonna check it out when you find that you don't you don't have uh you don't have any kids but you'll find like when you find something you can actually watch with your kid it's you you have to like cling to it because absolutely she watches i i my my five-year-old watches so much crap it's all it's all like horrendous YouTube families in the Midwest playing with toys that she owns, but she'd rather watch she'd rather watch Somebody them play else. with it than than turn six inches to her right and take the same fucking toy. Right. Um so when you find something like we're on a we're on a big uh Teen Titans Go is okay. is her is her new favorite thing. And and it's, I heard that's not terrible. Is that is that no? Is that it's true actually that? really funny. You can tell it's written by it, people who were sick of shitty kid shows, and I think it was written by people who must have kids that wanted them to experience something cool. Oh, that's great. That's good to hear. But they just had um, a band we'll be talking about soon. They just had De La Soul on Teen Titans Go, which really, which uh, they De La Souls have this. They have this whole big battle with with their record company and getting their music released on streaming services. And they had a whole episode that sort of taught kids about royalties. And um, through through Teen Titans Go, my daughter discovered De La Soul. And she asked me if I had any of their music and can I play it for her. Now we've been listening to De La Soul for like a week straight. And it's it's like amazing. Like I want to thank them for, for giving me something good to watch. So if Iggy, if Iggy, and- if Iggy Pops on a kid's show, I, I'll definitely show it to Lila. And, and just the, the so Teen Titans Go had an episode about royalties on there that, yeah, that, that was like, talked about like a week ago. That's, yes. That's yeah. kind of, that kind of reminds me of my favorite uh my favorite episode of Caillou which really uh, delved into the whole Napster thing. I don't know if you remember that. That was it was no. groundbreaking. For its for its time, it was groundbreaking. <laughs> no, I must have missed that one. All right, so let's let's uh let's dive into the 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 first artist that we've decided to cover. Yeah, so so the first episode is when Mr. Drummond adro- adopts the two boys, of course. <laughs> that first season, they spent a lot of time in a hot tub that you never saw again. Like they had a hot tub room that all right, we're yeah, it was very creepy. Um, so the first episode, we're looking at uh, an American-born rock saxophone player named Bobby Keys, and- who I knew nothing of until you brought him up although right. i've i have literally heard him hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in my life as has everybody here yeah we've grown up listening to his saxophone but i didn't know who he was until a few weeks ago 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. He's on, he's on, we, you and I were just looking at the list of like iconic songs that he's recorded on and it's, it's, it's like boggling. It's mind boggling. Yeah. Um, he was a, uh, he was like a real, he was like a, a rock and roll Forrest Gump. Like this dude just showed up and was in the right place at the right time. His, his whole career seemed like it was just one just one stroke of luck after the next. Absolutely. And he had that skill. He, if Forrest Gump had his legs and could run, he had his, uh, he had his sacks, his tenor sacks that he could, he could blow and everyone loved it. Right. Right. So he grew up, he, uh, he, he grew up in Lubbock, Texas. And as a 13, 14 year old, he, he he describes in his autobiography that that one day he heard this this music coming coming from down the street and it it was like nothing he'd ever heard and he followed it like he left his house and followed the sound of this music and he ends up in a backyard watching buddy holly practicing buddy holly is as a teenager grew up in lubbock texas and, Which um, just what dumb luck is that? Just in the middle of nowhere, Texas, Lubbock, Slayton, Texas, I think it was, yeah. you know, like a almost a suburb of that, just in this little little town, and just that's one of your first, you know, like I like the Beach Boys, I watched MTV, and but like Buddy Holly was down the street. I mean, right. how incredible! Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be like finding out that they that like you're, I, I don't know. Like that, your favorite thing was 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 being recorded in the house down there. They'd be like watching porn and then being like, "Holy shit, I know that house!" <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's Bobby's uh, by the mom's way, uh, house. Uh, there's a story going around. Ken and I are both stand-up comedians. We we travel, or at least we did before the pandemic. And there's a story that goes around that in a number of I want to say like '90s porn videos there was there would be the the room the hotel room or whatever the setting is and in a couple of them there was this headshot on the wall that was just a a road comic that would just hang there on some of them and it was just i think they were just like look for something to decorate the room and there might have even been a hole in the wall or something and they just found this headshot because it was probably around a defunct comedy club so these comics would apparently be watching porn and then see their buddy's headshot just randomly in the <laughs> background. Is it? Is it somebody? I mean, I, is it somebody I would know? Do you even know who the comic to is? To be honest, I can't. I can't remember who it was. I don't even. I don't even know if it'd be somebody we would know. But, uh, but just incredible. That's funny. So, um, by the way, I should tell you, uh, in, in an interesting term of events, uh, my dad grew up uh, downstairs from the Big Bopper. <laughs> no, I just made that up. <laughs> um, that's really funny. So he he hears. He hears Buddy Holly playing and according to him says like that was the moment at, at 14 years old where he was like, I know this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. He befriends Buddy Holly. He starts playing in backyard bands with him uh, around the, the Slayton, Texas area. And um, his... This was interesting. So he he didn't live with his parents. His parents had him very young. Mm -hmm. And they gave him to his mom's father. So his grandfather 
raised him. And he had very little to do with his parents. They ended up having other kids like later on. And they didn't like bring <laughs> they didn't bring him back. He just right. stayed. He stayed. And I believe his mother eventually became a state senator in New Mexico somewhere. His but, well, yeah, his I mean, somewhere. In- I saw that. I think I can, I don't know if it was his mom or his sister. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it's funny. I think that um, the, I think this is sort of the theme of this guy. Like he 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 wanted to prove himself uh, so badly to his hometown and to his family. He wanted to make something of himself and um, nobody, nobody seemed to pay him any attention or care. Right. Um, And I think that's going to be a theme we're going to see throughout a lot of these stories is we always look at these people as these rock gods, these, you know, multimillionaires who are super talented and can have any, any any woman they want and, and buy any house and travel the world. And they're beloved by legions of fans. But a lot of these people are broken and as most people are, I guess, but they have these, just needs to be validated and, and sort of vindicated that I think we'll also see. I mean, that's that's pretty common when you talk to stand up comedians as far as somebody who wants people to shut up and listen to them and just want to be validated somehow. So I definitely saw that in Bobby Keys a lot. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's something that he keeps returning to. And you and you would think and it, it didn't sound like it didn't even sound like he fit in with his hometown, you know, that was all very straight laced Texans. Um, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, probably a fairly mm-hmm. racist town and he was long hair and, and, uh, in, um, he's in bands with, with black musicians and, and doesn't care who he's hanging out with. So he, he, I don't know why he wanted so hard to prove something to these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, 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 it never left him. But he he, yeah. he he had this like it, he he says early on he knew he had to get out of his hometown that that he wanted to he wanted to see the world and he wanted nothing to do with them. But then he also battled with wanting nothing to do with them, but also desperately wanting their approval. I, I think it's almost that abandonment thing where it's like his parents sort of gave him up. So he has this grandfather in this hometown and he just he wants them to give him the pat on the back and be like, you did a good job, buddy. And they're not really going to do that because they're in a different, a totally different world, a totally different mindset. He would talk about going back home after being on tour with the Stones, you know, traveling the world, spending it in the south of France, coming yeah. back and them just not caring at all. <laughs> not, just not it's, caring. It's <laughs> just business is normal in Lubbock. And he just kept trying to to, to come back and, and they, you know, they didn't seem to care. But so at uh, at 17, he gets invited uh, on a tour with a Texas musician named Buddy Knox. And um, he's not legally allowed to tour because he's not 18. And his grandfather agrees to sign guardianship of him over to an 18-year-old drummer in in buddy knox's band and was just basically signed a piece of paper that said he's not my problem anymore anything that happens to him this kid that's like two years older than him is now legally responsible and then which is probably exciting in the moment but at the same time too like i i mean we all can have some mommy or daddy issues but can you imagine having legal documentation of that like just (laughs) here it is 
Uh, no one wants you. Uh, go go right ahead. Right. And that's that, that has to be, especially as a, what, 15, 16-year-old, just has to be a, a, right. a mindfuck. That, that's interesting. Yeah, at the time, because you're probably like, oh, thank God, now I can go do what I want. This is this is my dream, and I can go chase it. But then when you look back on it, you got to be like, wait, he <laughs> they signed me over <laughs> to a kid that was two years older. Yeah. That'd be like, you know, if I told Lila she can go move in with her seven-year-old neighbor and they were in charge now, she'd be pretty psyched in, 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 at the moment. Yeah. But I feel like that would be a lot of therapy later on down the road. That, that's like if your daughter threatened to run away and you're like, let me just call my lawyer and then <laughs> let her have it. Here's sign this and uh, the kid next door is in charge now. And you um, can just fax it over from across the street. So then uh, he, he starts touring with some of these local bands. He starts making his way a little bit out of Texas. And then in the early 60s, he ends up on a Dick Clark tour. And um, uh, I think it's 1965 in San Antonio. He, he's on this tour where uh, there's a bunch of bands of the day uh, on this giant Dick Clark tour. That's the first time he meets the Rolling Stones. Um, 1965 and uh, he he was in the same hotel as the Stones and um, he talks about the way he got their attention was I, I, I don't even know who he was playing with that they saw him playing with but um, he'd split his pants he was like getting dressed yeah. and he'd split his suit pants or whatever pants he was wearing uh, to perform and ended up um, ended up performing in Bermuda shorts and cowboy boots because he had nothing else to wear. And then Mick, Charlie, and Keith from the Stones all saw this American kid playing uh, playing rock sax in Bermuda shorts and cowboy boots and and made a, made a lasting impression on them. Like that that's when they first noticed him. And this is also back in the time when most bands, even the rock bands, are still wearing a j jacket, matching jackets and ties. The Beach Boys are in their striped, you know, s s striped shirts and their slacks. Like everybody's wearing something kind of buttoned up. And then this guy just kicks down the doors with right. his Bermuda shorts and boots. <laughs> so he gets uh, he, he completes this tour and then all his friends kind of move out to L.A. So he follows them to L.A. to try and make his own luck. Um, I don't know. So there's a there's a documentary about Bobby Keys. If you're listening, it's on Amazon Prime. It's called Every Night is a Saturday. Every night's a Saturday night. And um, he. uh he goes out he goes out to LA and and you see like they're interviewing like Edward James almost was was one of his neighbors mm -hmm. the the famous actor and they um they the the people that he's his neighbors are like a who's who of of rock and roll royalty in that um, in that late mid late 60s uh, where everybody just flocked to LA and just some of the greatest talents in the world were just, they were just jamming every night. They would just right. go and just play a gig and then come home, play some more. And, and that's pretty much all they did. And I guess could survive for months and months and years on that. Right. 
Right. And then he he forms he forms a blues band with some of his neighbors, um, J.J. Kale. I don't know if you know that name. He's a very yep. famous guitarist. Eric Clapton's spent a career trying to replicate what he does. Um, Levon Helm from the band mm-hmm. w- w- yep. was in that band. Uh, some some members of Taj Mahal's band, and they would just they would play every Sunday. They would have these jam sessions, and then whoever was in LA or whoever was around at the time would just show up and jam with them. Um, it's one of these jam sessions where members of this group, Delaney and Bonnie, who most people have never heard of, but who was, I hadn't heard of until, until this documentary. Right. Um, Delaney and Bonnie spawned. It was, it was, a. I, I want, I'm pretty sure they were husband and wife and they just kind of formed, yeah, so. they kind of formed this band that was, uh. It was kind of like a just a hodgepodge of like rock and country and soul music, everything just thrown together. And it caught the attention of a lot of these British invasion bands. Uh, yeah. A lot of these British invasion bands became, it was like Delaney and Bonnie was their unsung American band heroes. Like that, that's, that's who they were all trying to sound like. Um, and, and just as a, just as a, sort of a who's who of who was in this band at different times and sometimes all at the same time you had both the allman brothers Dwayne and greg allman leon russell uh you know you know of, of course bobby keys uh rita coolidge king curtis eric clapton bobby whitlock uh graham parsons was in for yes. george harrison yes i mean so it, it i mean george harrison was was part of this this lineup yeah I mean, it was everybody was in this band yes so there was there was a weird um there's a weird symbiotic energy going on between British invasion and and uh, American musicians. So what a lot of the British invasion music was, was uh, Brits showing their appreciation for American blues and rhythm music, um, specifically black music that wasn't getting played on the radio. You know, um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards have talked about in interviews having to get records imported from a specialty shop when they were kids. And that's how they discovered Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters, all the stuff that was in America, but nobody in America was appreciating. Mm -hmm. So there was this weird relationship where these giant British invasion bands like the Stones and the Beatles and the Kinks, they all gravitated towards American musicians and American musician, you know, back in the early sixties, you were still dealing with Perry Cuomo and Pat Boone and just like shitty pop music, you know, even like with like those beach boys, early surf rock yeah. records that it, it, there was and he, even like Elvis who, I mean, say what you will about Elvis, but like he was behind the times after, after a while with some, a lot of the stuff that he was doing, mm-hmm. you know, during that time, but it was just, it was, just, or not, not behind the times. I mean, obviously very talented, but just, very mainstream right so they um it was like they needed each other so the 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 british invasion bands were seeking out these american musicians because it gave them something authentic from the music that they loved and it gave the american musicians a chance to to play the kind of music that they loved that wasn't getting played on american radio but would now because these big bands were now embracing it. Right. 
So um, Delaney and Bonnie go out um, because they're championed so much by these British bands. They, they put together a pretty massive European tour. And um, that's where uh, – well, I'm just looking through my notes. That's where um, they, they come to England. They play the Royal Albert Hall. Like you said, George Harrison comes out with them. The place is packed with celebrities. I, I, there was a clip of Jack Nicholson sitting in the front row. Yep. And um, they start to uh, they start to make friends. They they start to uh, they start to really get noticed, and um, that's where that's where his that's where his luck starts changing. So um, he goes into the studio with Delaney and Bonnie after this tour the, to to record. This is the other thing, like like being in L.A. at this time. So they go to the studio to record an album. The studio next, you know, in the room next door in the same studio, the doors are recording L.A. Woman. Uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash is in the next room recording one of their uh, classic albums. The Stones are recording their album, Let It Bleed. And uh, this is like all on this, like all on the same day, like all this amazing yeah. music's being made in the same place. Bobby Keys goes out walks around the hallway, bumps into Mick Jagger and Mick's like, oh, it's great to see you again. We actually have, we have a song maybe you can play on. And he plays on uh, Live With Me um, off Let It Bleed, which is something that they they still play live a lot. That uh, And it was just again, like just a, like literally just bumped into him in the hallway. And then and then all of a sudden and it was definitely that vibe in L.A. too of just that cross pollination of like everybody's jamming with everybody and you know, it, it wasn't those, well, this is this band, this is this band. I mean, people were, and, and as we'll get into, I think there were some uh, personality conflicts, but just, you could just, everybody was just sort of in it together, both in London and in LA. It just seemed like everybody was in this mixing pot. Yes. Right. So then um, Delaney and Bonnie kind of, they come back to LA and they kind of bust up. Like they, you could tell there was already, um, there was already some infighting in the band even with Delaney and Bonnie, uh, the, the, Bobby Keys tells the story of, um, you know, the, the Give Me Shelter, the the classic, iconic Stone song. Um, Bonnie was in the studio and Mick asked her if she could sing that very famous uh, female part sung by Mary Clayton. And yep. Delaney says, no. Delaney's like, nope, you're not poaching my talent. Then they asked Bobby Keys to play sax on the song, and he was like, "Yeah, like I don't. Of course, I want to play with. Like he didn't care. Yeah, he's not beholden to them. No. So he was like, I don't care if you get mad. Like how do I how do I not play with the Stones? So he records the track with the Stones, and uh, I think they kind of forget about each other for a little bit. Um, Delaney and Bonnie break up. As soon as Delaney and Bonnie break up. Uh, because of all of the buzz they'd gotten in England, he gets a phone call from um, Leon Russell. And Leon Russell asks if he wants to join Joe Cocker's band. He he agrees. He immediately goes into the studio to record, um, what's that, Mad Men in English? Mad, Mad Dogs and Englishmen? Mad Dogs and Englishmen, which is yeah. probably his most well-known album. 
And just just live, just hearing that and seeing that live is some of the most powerful music. And I mean, kind of the Delaney and Bonnie kind of has that feel. But I mean, if you just want live music that just rocks and just it just kind of you can't even pigeonhole it as like, is it rock and roll? Is it soul? Is it is it blues? Uh, just Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen is just a, a crazy, crazy album. And just that time must have been just to see them live must have been unreal. Well, the the tour sounded the tour sounded insane. It sounded like yeah. um, the by the end of the tour, the band had swelled to like forty members or something. They they said that there there were so many people but, in the band that there was like nobody made any money. It, it was just, right. but it was also some of the best reviews Joe Cocker got in his life and um it's in joe cocker's band that he meets uh, an american trumpet player named jim price and the two of them form their own horn section that they they played together they were like a team they played together for about a decade um, and, and they had this they really worked it out well where they figured out which is which is kind of amazing whenever i picture a horn section you picture like six guys and it was the two of them, basically, just the two of them. And they figured out a way to play. I think they said they would just sort of play in unison, but an octave above each other just to give it that. They just figured out a way to make two guys sound like 10, basically. Right. And yes. just could blow the room away, literally, with just two guys, trumpet and sax. Right. And right. They, it nobody sound, could mess with them. They made themselves sound like a full horn section and not just two people. Mm -hmm. Um, which, uh, if in fact, when you watch the documentary, the very, it opens with a shot of Charlie Watts saying Bobby Keys wasn't the best saxophone player in the world. He was the best rock and roll saxophone, uh, saxophone player in the world. And which is, I think so interesting in just his upbringing in Texas with Buddy Holly. And he was so attracted to the guitar and you heard people say that his, his sax playing. And, and I think this is sort of how revolutionary some people get is where they they approach an instrument in a completely new way like they might not even be the best bobby keys couldn't read music like he couldn't physically read music he wasn't the most he wasn't a jazz sax player he didn't have all those chops but he just approached it and people said as a guitar player almost his yes. sax sounded like a guitar and that's how he attacked it so it, it wasn't even just his uh his technical you know, his technical playing, it was just his soul and his look, I am just coming at, from a completely different angle with this instrument and just made it sound, you know, totally, totally new. Right. Um, and in fact, a lot of those, you can replace a lot of those iconic sax solos with guitar solos and, yep. and it would, it would, it wouldn't sound that different. Yeah, and, and and not to get ahead of ourselves, but uh, with uh, with Brown Sugar, which we'll find out is almost exactly what happened. Yes, yeah, yeah, that that was a crazy story. So the Joe Cocker, and, and he was just a crazy, and and it was just, and this is like some of my favorite music too. It's like I love music, and and this is pretty cliche, but like I, I'm not a big technical music guy. Like you can be a guitar virtuoso, and that's that's wonderful and that's great. But if it doesn't have soul to it, if it doesn't right. have emotion to it, right, I'm kind of bored right and he wasn't the biggest technical guy but like you could just tell like he just had this voice with this saxophone that was just coming in and played just so hard and just with you could just feel his 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 heart coming through it um yes yeah if it's he he played with more soul than um than 
than a lot of people. Um, if, if you're trying to picture him, he would have he would have fit very well in the band Dr. Teeth in the Electric Mayhem from the Muppets. Like that's that's who would, <laughs> yes. just put him right in the middle of that band and he would fit in just fine. Right. So um, that's funny. So he the tour with Joe Cocker ends and uh, he knows Eric Clapton's gearing up to do a tour. Um, he him and Jim Price have a pretty good idea that Clapton isn't going to want a horn section or backup singers, but they fly out to England anyway to make themselves available in case he does. And Clapton ends up not really needing them, but he's hanging out at Clapton's house one day and there's a knock on the door and it's George Harrison. And George Harrison recognizes Bobby Keys and says, oh, I'm happy you're here. Actually, I'm recording an album and we could use some sax. Do you mind? Would you mind playing on this album? Bobby Keys is like, yeah, I guess I'll fucking play with a Beatle, you know. And he ends up recording All Things Must Pass, which is a legendary, iconic album. Um, I mean, just look at that trajectory from... Going back to the Forrest Gump thing from Buddy Holly into the Dick Clark thing and, and you know, all these all, all these great bands into this crazy mishmash of Delaney and Bonnie into Joe Cocker, Clapton. And now he's playing with the Beatle. I mean, it's just it's just he's this stepping stone from one iconic yes, artist to another. Just constantly in the right place at the right time. Uh, and also putting himself and that's one thing he said too. like Jim Price always just seemed a lot more introverted. And Bobby Keys just was this sort of good old boy that everybody liked and was would sort of knock on doors and be like, hey, hey, you need a sax guy. And he he put himself in the right places. I mean, he fell into the right places, but also put himself into those places and didn't wasn't shy about it. He was also uh, and, and we've talked about this in comedy like this is. Being a good hang, having mm-hmm. like being fun to be around, gets you more work than anything else. Then yeah, you you could be you could be the funniest stand up comic on the planet, but if you're like an asshole or absolutely no fun to be around, nobody's gonna want to work with you. Right. So you see it you see it all the time. You'll you'll see major comics have openers or they put their friends on shows and you're like, Why why would this person fuck with that person? And and then you find out like, oh, because they're the most fun person to bring on the road. Right. Right. So he And and it's just yeah, and it's it's just and that's the thing too about I mean, in the very limited success that I've had, it's when it comes to being an artist, it's like it's somebody just needs somebody to come in and do a job. They might as well need a house painter or a plumber. It's like, hey, you're there. I need somebody who's reliable, somebody who's going to do the job, who can nail it, get in and do it and be fun. And and that's that, you know, so it's not this this magical threshold of getting through. It's just like putting yourself out there, being there and being like, hey, uh, yeah, Eric Clapton, I can play with you. Sure. George Harrison, I'm around. I can do this. Yes. Yeah. And that's the other thing. It's, it's part of it is. Being a good hang, but then you also need the talent to back it up, especially yeah. when you're at this level. Like they're, they're, yeah. Eric Clapton and the Stones aren't going to keep you around because you're fun. Being fun will right. get you in the door, but if you don't have the chops, they're going to drop you pretty quick. 
And he had those chops and it was that feel too. And that's, I think what they wanted, that American vibe that he could put through that saxophone that they're like, that's the sound that we need. And you, you heard so many people in the podcast or in the podcast, in the documentary talking about like other people could play Bobby Key's part. Like if he wasn't touring with the Stones or with whatever, other saxophone players could play it and they could play it just fine. But it and it was the same notes, but it just wasn't him. It wasn't the same. He just brought that soul to it. Right. Uh, while while he's recording All Things Must Pass, at some point he bumps into John Lennon. John Lennon recruits him to play on Power to the People, <laughs> which is those horns are instantly identifiable. That, that, that's like what blares at you the minute that song starts. And it's also one of John, like Lennon's most iconic songs. Yeah. So this dude's just like, it's just mind blowing. Like just some kid from Texas was like, well, fuck it. I, I think I want to be a musician and, and just went out and made it happen, but also got to the very, like the very top of, he, he couldn't have gone further than he did. No. And he, it, it seemed like he was never intimidated by that. Somebody was talking about how like, People would get intimidated or they would try to change their personality to fit in with this person or that person or like I'm with, you know, Joe Cocker. I'm with the Rolling Stones now I'm with George Harrison. I have to act a certain way. And he was just always who he was and had that easy confidence that people could that just sort of dripped off of him. People were like, no, this is, you know, he didn't have to change who he was. He just confidently walked into any situation and was always Bobby Keys. Yes. And, um, okay, so then he, he, so now he's recorded with Lennon and Harrison and he sticks around in London and becomes a session player. Um, he records with, oh God, Elvis, Joe Cocker, Jimi Hendrix, Dr. John, Blind Faith, Faces, uh, Keith Moon. Ringo, he he played, he did, he did one thing with McCartney. He played with all four of the Beatles at various points. Every one of them. And um, so after, after, uh, after he records with George and John, he's out at a nightclub one night in London and bumps into Mick Jagger. Again, just right place, right time. Mick Jagger's like, hey, we're, we're in the middle of recording an album and we're actually thinking maybe of adding some horns and would you come play on what turns out to be Sticky Fingers, mm-hmm. which is um, as classic, you know, a, a lot of people will tell you that's the Stones' best album. Yeah. And um, they wanted to get, like, they went down to Muscle Shoals, which is uh, very, it's an iconic American studio. And the 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 Stones really wanted to get like a very authentic American feel to this record. They they wanted to make like a great soul record, and uh, so he ends up playing on that. Um, there's a song on Sticky Fingers. It's pr- it's a pretty obscure Stone song called "I uh, I Got the Blues," which mm-hmm. um, for me the horn playing in that it's it's as good as. That's as good as any soul song that's ever been written. Like that's as good as any Otis Redding soul song. That's as good as anything that ever came out on Stax. Um, and he was just, you know, in a nightclub at the right time. Um, and then he also ends up recording the sax on Brown Sugar, which I think arguably you could say is the most recognizable sax 
uh, sax playing in rock history. There's yep. probably some Springsteen fans that would tell you like Clarence Clemens has something more iconic, but I mean, Brown Sugar is, uh, that that's, that's as classic and iconic as the song gets, and he wasn't even supposed to play on it. I mean, like they had it, laid down the track. The, the track was done with a guitar solo. The track was done with a guitar solo that I believe you can actually find it now. They, they put out a Sticky Fingers Deluxe Edition, and the track was originally done with a solo from Eric Clapton. And uh, so one night, so Bobby Keys and Keith Richards share the same birthday. And Bobby and Keith are now at this point have become very fast friends. And so it's Bobby and Keith's birthday while they're recording and they have an all night jam session in the studio just for them and whoever was in the studio at the time. And they're playing Brown Sugar live in the studio to nobody. And Bobby picks up the sax and belts out a solo where the guitar should have been. And the Stones producer at the time, Jimmy Miller, hears it like in the middle of all the drunkenness and craziness, heard how good that sax sounded in that spot. And even though the song was finished and in the can, they they have him go in and record the solo and they they dub it in over over they take out the guitar and now it's become now it's become the sax solo. And that's the song. Which I think is sort of the Go ahead. Go ahead, you go. Uh which is sort of that symbiotic relationship that we were talking about earlier with that kind of made it even more American. Like they, they are looking for that sound. They have Clapton playing the guitar. And then it's like, no, this kid from Texas just has that soul that, that puts it through. And I think it kind of shapes them. And then going into, I think exile, I think probably Bobby had a lot to do with that, that shaping of that feel and that more bluesy sound. And uh, yes. you know, just that, that American country feel. Yep. yep. They said it's at this point after if, when you watch the documentary after they record Brown Sugar, Charlie Watts says uh, he made Stone songs iconic. Brown Sugar is all Bobby Keys. And yeah. they he got them to a point where um, by their own admission, they said they couldn't hear their songs without him and Jim Price in them. And they started writing their songs geared towards Bobby's sax. Um, so then he, he uh, they record Sticky Fingers and then they, they quickly go to the south of France to record Exile on Main Street. I'm sure the recording of Exile will be a full episode on here one day. Yeah. Um, because that, that in itself is, that one of the most uh, insane recordings of an album that, that ever took place. They were there they were tax exiles from England and they they spent their time in France because the the tax rate in England at that point was something like 50% and they were making too much money to give it all to uh yeah. to the government so they 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 just became tax exiles and they hold up in France for months and months they were there for 4 months before they ever even started recording anything they were just they would just, just jam. jam they would just jam and see what would come from it and they said that yeah, I, I think two two of the most iconic 
albums ever recorded like in music lore would be the stones exile main street and debbie gibson's electric youth i think would be the two <laughs> that really it's a, it's a coin toss. you know talk about debauchery yeah we'll 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 do another episode on exile on main street but um it's it's why it was it was an old the the mansion that they recorded it in it was a keith rented this mansion and it was an old uh nazi headquarters from from world war ii really i didn't know that yes yeah they found hidden nazi shit all all through the house and and you know there was rumors that it was haunted and uh um, they would play, there was no ventilation in it. There's a song on the album called ventilator blues because they, mm -hmm. they couldn't, they couldn't get comfortable and they would record in the basement and there wasn't enough room. The stones always recorded in one room. Like it wasn't, you go in and do your part, you go in and they always recorded live together and yep. they, they couldn't all fit in the basement the horn section you, you see pictures like they had to stand down the hall while the yeah. rest of while the rest of the band recorded and there would be really there would be really long breaks between fits of inspiration so like you would you would show up and then Keith would show up and start to jam and then would disappear for 6 hours cuz he mm -hmm. he was off doing heroin and, and god knows what else and there would just be six five, four, five, six hour breaks in in the middle of of recording. And they said that it would that drove a lot of people nuts. But Bobby Keys would just go outside and uh smoke a joint and and look at the, you know, watch the water. They were right on the French Riviera. And that it suited him. So um he he really he he ingrained himself into into the into the biggest band at the time. And and yeah. they 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 their sound started to evolve around him. Um, what's wild about this? And then and then so they they finish Exile. They go on tour. The the I think it's the 1972 Stones tour. It's con widely considered one of the best Iconic. rock tours of all time. And um, what's interesting is. You have a dynamic of like this dude that's he's like in the stones, but he's not really in the stones. You know, it's it's like he they paid him a salary. They they paid him well, but he wasn't a member of the stones. He didn't get he didn't write songs with them. He didn't get any royalty money. He, you know, sales from albums did nothing for him. He was just paid to tour. And um and just emotionally too, let's let's go back to that where it's this kid whose parents gave him up, and then his grandfather signed him off, which is great. So he's it looks like he's always just looking to join something, and then he becomes part of the most classic band in rock and roll, the biggest band in rock and roll. Yet he still isn't, right? And that's got to be so difficult for him. Like he is, but he isn't. And it's like I think all he wanted to do was just be accepted and be like, "You remember the Rolling Stones? Congratulations, we're here." And he was just always just right on that outside orbit. Like he's there, but he's not. And I think that I'm sure that just bothered him, where he just he wasn't quite accepted as much as they loved him and as much as he was a big part of it. He still wasn't a part. Right? Of, yeah, he was officially he part was, of that. Band. Right? Right? They 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 didn't cut him in on on. Uh you know, all their other deals, but he's, listen, he's got to be making more money than, than he ever thought he would make. It, it sounds like he was spending it just as fast. 
um, yes. on on exactly what I you know on drugs and women and that, like exactly what I would have spent it on if if I yeah. was you know if I could play a lick of anything and um so one night he he starts i guess um he starts enjoying himself a little too much and and he came into the stones at a time when they still had this reputation as rocks bad boys and you know throwing television sets out the window and and but they really weren't like that anymore like they you know that was their image but they'd already been into it for a few years and and were like over that. And when when Bobby yeah. Keys joins, he was like, "Oh my God, let's let's party!" You know, this is so great. And they were already yeah. like, that was at the point where I think like Mick was already done with drugs and and you know he yeah. would like go to bed early every night and shit like that. And he 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 joined what he thought was going to be this huge. And of course, I'm sure that you know Keith Richards was. Uh, was partying as hard as you would think, but I think the rest of the band probably wasn't. And um, he, I, I think it just uh, he he went a little too nuts with yeah. um. So the stone, which has got to be such a slippery slope of like I am joining this band, I have to keep up. Uh, not that he had to keep up, but that allows me to do this. He's making all this money. He's with the greatest band. They're in the south of France. They're touring the world, and. There's nobody really t- there telling you that like, hey, calm down, like cool it. Right. And that's that's got to be difficult. And like I think for us to sit back and say, well, if that was me, I'd stick on the straight and narrow. I'd have a drink or two, but then I'm not going to blow my chance. But once you're given that opportunity, yeah. that's got to be no, difficult. I don't, I don't think I would have lasted a week. Like there's there's right. no um, – there's no he, – he did it like you were supposed to do it back then. Um, yeah. Then they're on, and then Keith tells the story of they finally have to fire him, not over his playing. You know, he's he's still great on stage every night, but they're on tour. I forget where in Europe, and it's time to leave for the show, and they can't find Bobby, and Keith goes into his room and finds that, I want to say he ordered something like 100 bottles of Dom Perignon, from yep. hotel room service, dumped it into the bath and was in the bath with some naked groupie. And, um, but apparently, I didn't know this until I was just looking at this uh, right before I came here. He charged all the Dom Perignon to the stones. And a hundred bottles was, you know, like a fucking, it was a shitload of money. Yeah. And um, I, I think it was I think I read that it was more that right there was more money than he made on yes, his on yes. that entire tour. Yep. Yeah. yeah. He spent more money on a bath full of champagne than he made. And uh, Keith was like, hey, it's time to go. You know, we got to leave. We got a show. And Bobby was like, I don't think I can make it. And yeah. he and Keith was like, you, you know, you could do whatever you want on your own time, but you you can't miss a show. And Bobby was like, I don't think I can make it. And uh, then he's he was unceremoniously fired from the Rolling Stones for partying too hard. And and the management yeah. told him that he was a bad influence on Keith Richards. Like, yeah. imagine. I mean, can you imagine? Yes. Can you imagine? <laughs> 
getting thrown out of the Rolling Stones for partying too hard. <laughs> and this isn't like the Rolling Stones now. This isn't the the grandfather Rolling Stones. This is like they're Down in their dirt. 30s in their rock and roll prime. And he gets he gets dumped from the stones for partying too hard. And and I love the the Keith Richards quote was basically something like, you know, it was a really dumb decision, you know, to spend that much money on on Dom Perignon and 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 to charge it to us. And uh, but then he was like, but also I kind of respect it. <laughs> you know, <he> was, right. <laughs> Um, yeah, and he seemed like he was his biggest champion. Where some Mick was a lot less impressed by that, and one uh, that really wanted to move on. Yes, yeah, and it's it's it, he. I think he started out tight with me. He was the best man at Mick Jagger's. What did you did you hear the Did you catch the story in the documentary about Mick Jagger's wedding in France? Yeah, where they're and down in the bathroom. He wants to meet. Uh, so Ronnie Wood who wasn't a member yeah. of the Stones yet at that time was still in Faces, but he's at Mick Jagger's wedding and he's heard and Keith's like, oh, you got to meet, you got to meet, you got to meet Bobby Keys. You got to come with me and meet Bobby Keys. And uh, so they go down to, um, Ronnie Wood shows up at the wedding and he's told, oh, uh, Keith and Bobby are in the bathroom. And so Ronnie goes to meet them in the bathroom and I don't know what he thought they were doing, but it turned out that... Um, Bridget Bardot was like yes. sunbathing on the beach right outside the hotel where they were at. And he said they walked in and Keith Richards and uh, Bobby Keys were like peering through the window, trying, trying to just stare at Bridget Bardot. And that was like a and, couple of 14 year olds. Yes. Yeah. Which I also thought was so funny. Like you, you're the like Keith, you're like the biggest rock star on the planet and you're giggling. Like that's a like that's how beautiful some women are. That right, you, 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 it just reduces you to like. And I thought that was I thought that was a funny story of of how they met. Yeah, just bonding over creeping on on Bridget Bardo. Um, but then he he's fired from the Stones, and uh, and then it never he never quite he never quite gets back to where it takes him a long time to get back into the stones. Um, he, 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 hooks and, and I, th I think it's at a weird time too, where, you know, so this is the early seventies, not only is his career, let's say waning or, you know, he's, he's got his drug issues. He's, he's had some problems. He's been fired from the stones, but then it's like, okay, who's hiring, sax players in the 70s like that's when that's kind of fading out of rock and roll so it's it's you know the, the jobs were dry, drying up like he wasn't you know it what it, it wasn't the 50s it wasn't the 60s it wasn't the buddy holly era anymore right. right you know to be a guitar player that'd be one thing yes but it's it's almost an obsolete instrument to a certain extent yes and that's that's what i keep thinking about it's like he had to have just thought, well, hey, I'm with the Stones and this is never going to end, you know, and 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 this faucet of cash is never going to get turned off. And it probably got really used to private jets and, and playing stadiums and arenas. And and then all of the sudden he's he's back in L.A. and broke and uh, he hooks up with Harry Nilsson for a little bit. Um. But he he never he never finds a band. 
you know, like the stones. He, he, he's eventually welcomed back into the, into the stones fold, but he, he's got 10 or 15 years that are just kind of like, he's lost, you know, he, yeah. he, he blew his one big chance. He, the stones replaced him. It's not like the stones stopped using horns. They just yeah. found somebody more reliable. Um, he returns to Texas, you know, thinking that maybe uh, maybe he'll be welcome back. And they said, like, nobody even cared. It's it's just no. the fact that this dude went out and conquered the world in his profession and then comes back to, to a hometown where nobody cares. They, they, there was a story about um, the Stones were in Texas when he's still with them. And he – someone convinces him to do, like, a one-nighter at, at a nightclub in his hometown – and he puts a band together and uh, he thinks he's going to get this like hero's welcome and that there's going to be a line out the door for like, you know, local kid makes good. And he he said that hardly anybody showed up, that that there wasn't, yeah. he said there wasn't even a line like in, you know, like in the bar. He, he's like, there wasn't yeah. even a line that like... <laughs> Yeah, and, not around the corner, just right. not even through the door. Yes. Yeah. And he and even when he was touring with the Stones, there was a few girls that he knew from high school showed up and he thought, boy, I'm going to really impress them. And they were almost like, who are these English guys? Like, I don't really know who they are. Like, it was just like, are you OK? Why are you touring? It wasn't like, oh, my God, you're with the Stones. Yes. Like it was they, it was just this foreign uh, you're just this alien force that, that that they weren't used to, and that's I, I mean I guess that's Central Te- you know Lubbock Texas just not they just weren't tuned into it and just didn't seem to care, and he wanted to make that big impression, but you know you just it's like you can't come home again. Yeah, they had they have that sad shot of him sitting outside, parked in front of. I, I know we touched on it, but he's parked outside of his 50th high school reunion, and they're filming him, and he never he never goes in. He just yeah, he, he just, just sits, sits outside, outside and he he he's convinced that nobody there will be happy to see him. I just, mean, he has the best stories of anybody coming back to that fifty three. <laughs> yes. I mean, who else would be a part of that story? And and just and can't do it, can't do it. And I think that's psychologically of that sort of abandonment thing and trying to impress people. And just he was always trying to uh, make good. And as much as he did, the people that he wanted to impress weren't going to be impressed right and it's just something so sad that he couldn't just be like either well fuck that high school reunion i don't need you know yeah. i i don't need to prove anything to these losers or just i'm just gonna go and walk in and see what happens you know yeah i've i've i've, I've accomplished a lot i i've got a lot to be proud of but the fact that he just sat there in the car and was just too sad to go in it was it was it's depressing it was rough yeah. Um, yeah. So then, but he, he gets back into the Stones eventually, though, and I did, think that's a crazy story. 1989, the Steel Wheels tour, and yeah. uh, they're rehearsing, and Keith calls him and says, "Listen, uh, show up for rehearsal. I'm not going to tell Mick. We're going to keep you hidden, and when we start rehearsing Brown Sugar, come out, come out and play." And yep. so he does, he hides, he's like hidden somewhere and the stones start rehearsing Brown Sugar. Bobby Keys walks out and nails his sax solo. And um, 
they said, uh, according to Daryl Jones, who's who's the Stones bass player now, Mick stopped everything and pointed at Keith and was like, you caught me. And he pointed at Bobby and Keith and was like, let's go talk. And they went and slammed an office door and they said they heard Mick yelling for about an hour straight. And then uh, afterwards, the door opened and everything was fine. And, and Bobby Keys was back on board. Yeah. So it does have a happy ending. He ends up. He ends up. Uh, he 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 makes every tour with the Stones after that until until his health gave out. And and uh, but so In he like 2013, does. 2014. Yeah. So um. He. Uh, yeah, he got sick. He like missed an Australian tour or something, and that's that's when they knew it was maybe you know the beginning of the end. But it it does have a happy end, just despite all. The only thing that um, the, what I thought was really interesting uh, at the end of at the end of uh, they're clearly interviewing him in this documentary close to the end of his life, and um. You know, like you know how all these guys are always like, oh, if I can go back, you know warts and all i wouldn't change a thing even all the drugs and partying i i wouldn't change anything it had to be done that way he i he seemed like he was just filled with regret he was like yeah i would change everything he was like i would yeah a lot of wasted time yeah i i i i i wouldn't have uh i wouldn't have picked up drugs i wouldn't have drank as much and i would have i would have made even more music which is when we when you start looking at the iconic songs that this guy was on to th- and then to think like oh he 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 regretted everything up until up until the end like right do you have a list of yeah some of those i mean it's it's crazy the the artists he's played with and the songs that he's a part of yes hold on uh working class hero Give peace. This is all John Lennon. Give peace a chance. Mother. Power to the people. Jealous guy. Um, Well, well, well. Cold turkey. Uh, With the Stones, he was on um, Brown Sugar. I I mean, anything that you've heard, anything you've heard horns on in the Stones was was Bobby Keys. Um, Yeah. He 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 recorded with Elvis. He he was on. Yeah. I don't I don't remember which. He's on some like classic Elvis song. He's he's on uh, the famous Joe Cocker, the letter. He he, mm-hmm. he recorded. He's on that. He's on that recording. He's he uh, like you would think Brown Sugar would be enough to be like, hey, that's I, my uh, piece of history. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Oh, all right. Ming, Ming's got it up. So here's 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 who he's recorded. Here's who he's recorded with. The all right, Stones, Joe Cocker, George Harrison, uh, Lennon. He was on Keith's solo records. He played on two of Ringo's records. Ronnie Wood's solo records. He BB King, uh, Barbara Streisand, Carly Simon, Chuck Berry. Donovan, Dr. John, Clapton Faces, Harry Nelson, Warren Zevon, Humble Pie, John Hyatt, Keith Moon. He was on Keith Moon's solo record. Uh, Leonard Skinner, uh, McCartney. Um, it's saying he played something with Marvin Gaye. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Sheryl Crow, Graham Nash. The only, it's funny, the only band that I'm, I could not believe he didn't play with that I went back and looked at, I was like, well, he must have done something with the Black Crows. And yeah. that, I was like, I can't believe they didn't try and scoop him up for something. Because they, when, yeah, when exactly. they came out in the '90s, they were the only band that was that was doing that kind of uh, that kind of music. But other than that, yeah. this this dude, this dude took an instrument that literally nobody was using anymore in rock, and and just forced himself into all this great music on by just with sheer determination and talent. Yeah. So. I'm going to start learning how to play the sax. I think that's the moral of the story is I'm going to pick up a tenor sax and start playing. If I'm you, leaving comedy behind. What if you could if you could be like a, if if what would you rather be? Like let's say you had equal talent for both. Would you rather be like a a musician or a comic? You know, all, they say all comics want to be musicians, all musicians want to be comics. Um I think being a musician is so cool, man. It's, yes. uh, it really is. It's, and I wouldn't, and like, I couldn't be a virtuoso guitar player. You know, I'd be a bass player, something in the background, be a sax player. That's what I, that's what I like to do. How about you? I would for sure be a musician. Like if I could yeah. play piano or rhythm. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be like a front man, but like rhythm guitar, you know, like, like, yeah. If I could be like Keith Richards or Izzy Stradlin, I would take that over. Yeah. And, and the nice thing about, you know, musicians and bands is that people only want to hear your old stuff. Like you don't have to write that much. Yeah. You can sit back and play the hits like they get they get mad that they have to sit back and play the hits. Man, yes. if I could just play my old uh, tell my old jokes, it's, uh, you know, it's, but of course, you know, if again, if given the choice, comedy, music. You know, again, I'd be a close-up magician. That's what I would do. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? Um, yeah. Uh, all right. Is there anything, anything you want to add to this? I, I guess we're gonna wrap up. How how'd you? How do you think this went? I think hopefully it went well. I hope people enjoyed it. I and my goal for people, we are not experts in and. Ken did the lion's share of of the research for this one, and I appreciate that. And it's we're, we're not rock and roll historians; we're not experts. I'm sure we probably flubbed a couple of lines, but my goal for this podcast is just to get people into these weird stories, get them excited, and start listening to stuff. Like I went back and started listening to some of these bands, even Harry Nilsson, which I didn't know a lot about. I, mean, I know a little bit of Harry Nilsson, but like went back into Harry yeah, Nilsson. He would make Delaney a good episode. And, yeah, yeah. Yes. Delaney and Bonnie, just to hear some of these, like just to get people excited about it and go into some of these stories and kind of pull some of these humans out of what we think are just these icons. And there's so many human stories behind it. And hopefully that's what we hopefully that's what we did. One of my favorite stories about him was on stage at some point. I think it was when he was playing with the Stones was he was great. at He could light a cigarette like nobody. He like threw us. He would pop a cigarette in his mouth. Do you remember the story? He yes. popped a cigarette in his mouth, like without just physically could just throw it in his mouth, catch it. And then like did the coolest thing where, if you know, he just like ripped a match off, lit it. And then I think put the matches back in his shirt pocket. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. his shirt pocket caught fire and he just kept playing. He kept and his he shirts on fire, took his shirt off stomped it out, kept playing, and then put his shirt back on, still smoldering. Still smoking. Yeah. yeah. And just wailed the entire time. Yes. I mean, that's, a, I think that's Bobby Keys right there. Yeah. 
All right. Well, um, you have anything to plug? You got anything coming up you want people to know about? I I would uh, love for just people to find me just on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm just at Chip Chantry, all one word. And uh, uh, I'm doing a couple of Zoom shows right now, but not much live. But hopefully that'll change soon. But I, I update all of that on on Facebook, but especially Twitter and Instagram at Chip Chantry. And I have two, I have two albums out across from the Adonis and Swingers Party, which you can get wherever you get your comedy albums. And how about you, Ken Krantz? Um, I um, Ken Krantz comic. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram, and um, uh, I do have some live dates coming up, but I don't, I don't know what they are off the top of my head. I got to. Uh, um, I'll announce them. I'll announce them the next the next show. Yeah. Um, and then I think we're going to, we'll be back either. We, we got to figure out if this can be weekly or bi-weekly, but uh, we're going to be back soon to talk about Van Halen. I, I'm excited about that. All right. And if you, by the way, if, if you have any feedback, like find us on Twitter, on Instagram, let us know what you think about the show and, you know, rate and review it. And also if you have topics that you want to hear about, if there's bands or certain musicians, let us know. Maybe we'll, we'll dig into those. Yeah, for sure, and and we're gonna we're gonna be bringing guests on, uh, pretty for for a lot of the shows. We we wanted to do the first one so so people can kind of get to know us, but we'll we're gonna be interviewing musicians and comics and having them tell us some of our favorite stories, and uh, giving us stuff to learn about. So oh, yeah. and I want to say we we haven't heard it yet. We got to edit it in, but um, our intro and outro music was uh, provided by um, uh, a good friend of mine, Eric Harrison, uh, who is a, uh, he's been making music here in New Jersey for, uh, he's like one of my brother's best friends as, as far back as I can remember when I was when I was a kid in junior high, this this kid was uh, putting out his own music and, and releasing albums. So um, his name is Eric Harrison. You could find him, um, you can find him, I, I think, wherever wherever you stream anything, wherever you stream any music. And um, he has, uh, um, he's got a single coming out in June, a new single coming out in July, and a five-song EP in August. So thank you, Eric, for our music. And um, he, he's got a lot of great stories. I'm sure we'll have him on one day. Yeah, oh, that'd so be great. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. And, and thanks to uh, a shared universe too for uh, for hosting us. Yes, yeah, thank you, thank you, Ming Chen behind the board. Um, and uh, all right, I think this was uh, this was a good start. And uh, again, uh, come back next week. We're either going to be talking about Van Halen or the Sam years of different <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this still may revert back to a different Strokes podcast at some point.